Well, have I got an opening quotation for you. And I quote, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Quote, end quote. Sounds drastic. I think we can all agree to that. Um, I don't know if it sounds very Christian to our Christian ears, but it sounds exactly like what God says in Jeremiah chapter 3 because I'm quoting God in Jeremiah chapter 3 when he pronounces his divorcing of the nation of Israel. So now that I have your attention, and if I don't have your attention, I did my best, um, and now that perhaps I've caused you to question what Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so taught you growing up in Sunday school class, um, we are going to learn about divorce today uh, from Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19, where we are going to learn from Jesus about divorce. Now, the reason we're doing this is because we're studying this gospel account, and we're in chapter 19, and Jesus talks about marriage. We did that last week. He talks about singleness. We'll talk about that next week, but today is the controversial day, if you will. We're talking about divorce and remarriage. I told my son Josiah yesterday, I wanted to tell him what I was talking about today, and I said, you know, we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, and I said, you know, just so you know, it's controversial. He goes, oh, Dad, I like controversy. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Pray for his mother. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I want to state the obvious before we actually read what Jesus says. And the obvious is that God loves single people. And God loves married people, and God loves divorced people. And all people need the gospel. So let's remember that as we stare at this particular, as we look at this tree, if you will, the grander scheme in Matthew's gospel account is Jesus didn't show up to be a marriage and divorce and remarriage expert. Everything he says is true. He knows more about these topics than anybody. But Jesus came, and this is in a grander context, and we re- I remind you of this every time we're in this book, in Matthew one twenty one, his name is Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And his people definitely include young people, uh, single people, married people, divorced people, all different kinds of people. So the basis for our joy uh, is salvation in Christ. And so regardless of who you are or what, you, what your situation is, you need Christ and you need his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And so let's not forget that today as we learn about this controversial topic. Fair enough? Let's not lose sight of the grander picture. So what starts this whole, uh, the catalyst for all of this and the discussion is in verse 3. You can go ahead and look there with me if you would, where in verse 3 it says, And, and Pharisees came up to him, him being Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What do you think? A good question or a bad question? 
it's good to ask questions about morality if you want to know right and wrong. And so it's a weird place to ask it. And it seems like they're, they're picking a fight with Jesus or they're trying to set him up uh, and create controversy. But it's a fair enough question. I think it's probably true that everyone who was there with Jesus and the Pharisees and the disciples knew what he was asking or knew what they were asking. And I think it's probably true that some of us actually don't know what was being asked. Um, we, we read it only through our lenses, only through 21st century, and we don't realize that at the time there was a super heated debate in Judaism. Okay, so two rabbinical rabbi schools, and they fought like crazy, and they fought like crazy over whether or not a man can divorce his wife for one reason or two reasons based upon Deuteronomy 24. So there's this raging debate happening uh, over Deuteronomy 24, and one school of thought, the Shammai school, said Deuteronomy 24, it's for sexual immorality, you can divorce and remarry. The other school is the Hillel school, and it was, yes, you can have a divorce if there's sexual immorality or for any cause. And that's what's going on in the context, and that's why some Bible uh, scholars would say it would maybe even be helpful if there were quotation marks after the last two words to capture the, the context and the history and the debate, the any cause debate. Because one school says, oh, it's Deuteronomy 24, only sexual immorality. But then the broader school says, oh, no, it can be for any reason. I kid you not, even if you don't like her cooking. Okay, so it's the, it's the, it's the view that says you can get a divorce, get a divorce, get a divorce, get a divorce. You can break marriage easily. Uh, it's just fine. It's good. In fact, it's biblical. And they want to know where Jesus is on the any cause debate. Okay, where does he come down on this whole thing? Is he with the Shammai school or the Hillel school? That's what's going on here. That's what they're asking him. And as we will see, Jesus is going to answer their question. But not quite yet. Before he answers their question, we read verses 4, 5, and 6 on marriage. We studied this last time, but we should read it today. It is really good what he says. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And we focused on that last time and we talked about the good aspects of marriage as a blessing from God and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I would commend it to you if you weren't here. Hopefully it will be edifying and encouraging. But it won't be our focus today. Let's get back to the debate. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Referring again to Deuteronomy 24. Well, if you're going to talk about the permanence of marriage and the goodness of marriage and from the beginning, then, then why did Moses say what he said that you, he, Moses commanded that you get a divorce? I'm scrunching up my face because even they don't say that, right? Even they say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? 
But it's it's like they're 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 reading that, reading their own desires into it, right? And, and they're reading that, and they're saying, "Well, you know, divorce is biblical. You know, divorce is commanded by God from Moses, after all." Even their own words condemn their flippant attitude toward divorce. Because Moses doesn't command the divorce. Moses commands what? That you give her a certificate of divorce. Which actually, if we look at the text, and we're going to talk about it, is positive. If you're going to divorce your wife, you need to give her proof that she's divorced. Proof that she's no longer legally and religiously connected to you. You need to give that to her so she's free to move on with her life is what you need to do. That's clearly, clearly Moses' intent. But they're using it and they're misusing it as some sort of license to do whatever they want to do as if it's a virtue to keep divorcing people. Now I'm going to read a series of observations um, from someone who was expert in ancient Near East, which I don't claim to be. I don't even play one on TV. Um, but I found these things, to be, these things to be interesting, and so I'm going to read them to you that might help us to understand how valuable in this culture having a certificate of divorce would have been for such a woman. And I quote, It is very difficult, however, for you to get married when the law says your, your original husband can reclaim you at any time and can also reclaim your children. He might even wait till your children have become economically useful workers and then decide to enforce his rights. She's my wife. Those are my kids. Another quotation regarding this. The most impressive difference between the laws of Israel and those of other ancient Near Eastern nations were in the laws of remarriage. In other countries, it was difficult to, for an abandoned woman to get remarried. But in Israel, this unfairness was corrected by giving her the right to receive a divorce certificate from her husband, Deuteronomy 24.1. This certificate had to be given to any woman who was abandoned, abandoned or thrown out by her husband. It confirmed that her husband had divorced her and meant that it was safe for another man to marry her. He didn't have to worry that her first husband would return one day to demand his wife back. I think that's interesting. If you do, awesome. I've got more. If you don't, I've got more. I'll hurry. Some privileged wives of high-ranking army officers were given a similar certificate if their husbands were missing and presumed dead after battle. Without a body, it was uncertain if the husband was really dead, and so the wife was not able to remarry no matter how long he was missing. But the Middle Assyrian law made a special concession for such a wife. After waiting for two years, without news of her husband, she was given a certificate of widowhood. This contained these words. You are now free to marry any man you wish. These same words are found in all the Jewish divorce certificates that have survived from the earliest times. Fascinating. And we can therefore presume that these certificates were patterned on something like this ancient concession for war widows of high-ranking officers. All Israelites shared an equal rank in Moses' law. It wasn't just high-ranking women who could have this type of certificate, but any woman whose husband abandoned her. Again, from Deuteronomy 24. 
It's, it's freedom, proof. I'm free to move on with my life. I think it's fascinating. It's not gospel, it's not biblical, uh, but it might be helpful for us to have an understanding, especially in light of Jewish divorce certificates uh, that say those kinds of things again and again and again and again. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free to even be remarried. Okay, let's progress further in the controversy. Verse 8 says in Matthew 19, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Kind of goes back to what he said earlier. Haven't you read? You guys just want to keep getting divorce after divorce and you think it's almost biblical and and morally virtuous and, and you realize it's because of sin that there is divorce. You realize this was allowed because of the hardness of heart. You realize that this is not how it was intended to be. And here you're trying to say, we worship Yahweh, the one true God, and we seek what is best and most glorifying to Him. And he's addressing those kinds of people. It's because of your hardness of heart. Why, why do you wear it as a, as a badge of honor, this divorce thing, when there are allowances, but you guys act like it's the morally virtuous thing to pursue? Not a good look. As I say, oftentimes, it's no wonder they're going to crucify Him. Your hardness of heart. They're so selfish they can't see straight spiritually and they can't read the Bible straight either. Now, finally, the moment we've been waiting for, or not, Jesus answers where he is in the debate between the two rabbinical schools, the two uh, schools in Judaism. In verse 9, look there with me if you would, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So which side is Jesus on? He's not on the Hoel side. He's not on the side that says any cause. No, he's on the other side, except for immorality. You stay married. When it comes to this debate... Okay? He's not on the any cause flippant cavalier side to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He says, no, I'm on the other side. Whoever divorces his wife for, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And let's, let's use our logic for a moment and think about what he's getting at there at the end of verse 9. Why would it be adultery? Well, it would be adultery because if the marriage actually was never broken... And so the vows are still intact to go then and marry someone else while you're technically, legally still married to the other person because the marriage was never broken. Now you've committed adultery. So that's how the logic would flow out. And so Jesus tells them he's clear where he is in this whole thing. I say it that way because sometimes we read this verse a a bit out of context and we try to make it mean something else. Well, it's because the first marriage was never broken. It's not broken when it comes to this Deuteronomy text, except for sexual immorality. Well, before we move on, and we do need to move on, but before we do that, uh, let's just be clear on a few items that maybe we um, would go past too quickly if we didn't stop to notice. The first thing to notice is he says, 
whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, uh, we should know it's, he uses that, it's translated that way on purpose. It's not adultery, actually. It's sexual immorality. It's very broad. Uh, the Greek word porneia, where we get pornography, it comes straight over into our language. It's, um, general, generic sexual sin. It's sexual activity outside of marriage. So it's very inclusive when it comes to sexual activity. So that is what would lead to a breach in the marital covenant. And then there would be allowance for divorce and so on. But to keep that in mind, he uses that word there. Uh, Some have taken it as only adultery, but it actually is not that. It's broader than that. Another thing we should observe before we move on, again, technical things, but worth our noticing. And that's that it's assumed here Jesus assumes that they know, but maybe we don't know, that sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. And so let's, let's be clear on that. Um, and then one other thing to notice here. We do notice that sexual immorality, according to what Jesus says, breaks the marriage covenant. Sexual immorality breaks the marriage covenant, and that would be grounds for a biblical divorce. Okay? Pretty straightforward there. Um, it's not the Hillel school, but there actually is a ground for divorce. Therefore, therefore, when someone tells you that there are no biblical grounds for divorce and or remarriage, are you going to believe them or not? I'm not going to. When someone says there's no basis for divorce in the Bible... I'm not going to believe them because of what Jesus clearly says in Matthew 19. Okay? So, when someone says, and I quote, there is not to be divorce, no exceptions, end of quote, and you're a famous Bible teacher, are you going to believe the famous Bible teacher or not? I'm going to encourage you not to believe the famous Bible teacher. I'm going to encourage you to believe Jesus. Okay? And that's a quotation from Harold Camping, the founder of family radio. Um, he's no longer living, um, but I think he um, misled a lot of people and made it clear that you could never divorce and never remarry. Um, but that's kind of strange because it sounds exactly the opposite of what Jesus says in Matthew 19. And I'm going to encourage you to believe Jesus. Okay. I would also remind you that Harold Camping again and again and again predicted the second coming of Christ, which sounds strangely odd given that Jesus says no one knows the time or the hour, sort of like the divorce thing where Jesus is clear. But Harold Camping knew better. Um, Harold Camping also said that all churches are apostates, so you have to learn the Bible from him, uh, and so you should leave your local church. Some of you have been affected by Harold Camping. Harold Camping is a cult leader, and so when people say things that directly contradict the Bible, don't believe them, believe the Bible. Okay? There are other Bible teachers who are famous. I only, I'm only mentioning one who have said things like this. If we tell people that there's a biblical allowance for divorce, they might get a divorce. So we can't tell people there's a biblical allowance for divorce. And that's called legalism. And it's not a good look. Okay, And so here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to follow what Jesus says and the Bible says. And so we don't want to be licentious. I'm using two L words just so I can remember. Licentious, a license to do anything and everything, Hallel school. But at the same time, it would be just as anti-Christian 
and dishonoring to God to be a legalist, to say, well, God says this, but we are going to add to it because, you know, if word gets out, somebody might go and do what's biblical and think it's okay, because it would be. So this is always our struggle. We want people to do the right thing. I want people to do the right thing. But we have to remember that Jesus knows what's right, okay? And, and we got, we got to just let Jesus say what Jesus says and, and, and be good with that. Um, ready to move on? If you read the Bible, you might come to the conclusion, if you read the Old Testament and New Testament, let me say it another way, if you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, you might come to the conclusion or at least think, you know, I don't think this is the only basis for divorce and remarriage. And if you think that, I'm with you. I think the New Testament and the Old Testament actually provides allowance for divorce beyond this. Not total license, not Hillel school, but another basis for divorce and remarriage. Now, I want to be um, full disclosure. There are Christians who I respect a lot, not Harold Camping types. Um, not Bill Gothard types, but ones I respect a lot who are Bible-believing, faithful, gospel-affirming Christians who think there's only one allowance, um, the one we just looked at. And I think we can still be friends, <laughs> okay? Um, maybe somewhat of an in-house debate, even if it's not an in-church debate. Um, our approach at Omaha Bible Church has been, uh, since I've been here and before then, uh, is to acknowledge that the Bible teaches, Old and New Testament, that there are two uh, biblical grounds, two categories, if you will, um, sexual immorality, and then the other one is abandonment, um, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, also in light of the Old Testament, and so that's where I'm coming from, uh, and we're not the only people who would affirm that, also in good company affirming that, just so you know, uh, it is a debate within Christianity, and I wasn't born yesterday, and I'm not being, I'm not going to tell you that I know all the answers, and I've got it all solved, um, but we do have texts that seem to indicate there's another place where divorce and remarriage would be allowed, okay, ready, ready to look at it? Hope you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the text I'd like to draw your attention to. There's a whole lot going on in 1 Corinthians 7. We're not going to look at all the ins and outs. Um, we, I would love to do that if we were just studying 1 Corinthians 7. But right now, talk about unscrambling the omelet. Um, there's a whole lot going on uh, in 1 Corinthians 7. Like, okay, I just became a Christian and my spouse is not a Christian. Now what do I do? Should I divorce him? Uh, I just became a Christian and my spouse just became a Christian. Uh, should we get a divorce? Um, are physical things bad? Uh, there, there are all kinds of factors happening, and Christians have sincere questions as to what they should do. The one I want to focus in on right now for the sake of time and sanity uh, for, for today would be, what if I'm married, I'm converted, and my spouse doesn't get converted? Then what? Let's go ahead and read chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So that would be a key text in those two verses where people like myself and as, uh, even as a church, we'd say there, there's actually an, an additional allowance when the spouse 
no longer wants to uphold their vows, what does the person who is the offended party, if you will, do? Well, they're no longer, what does he say? They're no longer enslaved, which is a negative way of saying the positive, they're free. They're free to move on with their life. We wouldn't be reading too much into it to say they're free to have official separation, it's called divorce, and move on and be remarried again if we're reading it in light of the Old Testament because that certainly is the pattern in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to read it that way. God has called you to peace. For a long time in my Christian life, I, I, I think since I can remember, I've been taught and held to that there, there are two exceptions. And I still, would, I still would affirm that. But for the longest time, I didn't really know maybe why Paul says what he says. It, it kind of, if I'm just honest and candid, it kind of seems like, well, Jesus says this, and Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, so what he's going to say is true, and I believe in inspiration, and, so, and he gave a second reason, and so I'm good with that. Uh, but it kind of seemed out, like it was out of thin air. Um, and if it is, I'm good with that, okay? Um, but it, I'm more and more convinced that there, there's Old Testament background, and that the Apostle Paul isn't so much, hey, I'm an apostle so I can say this, which would be fine. But there's Old Testament background because what Jesus addresses, and we're going to look at Exodus in a second, so if you want to look at Exodus. What Jesus addresses is the particular debate between the two schools, the any cause debate. That Jesus never was intending to give a dissertation on all matters concerning divorce and remarriage. But the Old Testament has more to say than just the Deuteronomy text. It has more to say, for example, in Exodus. And Paul is, if you will, picking up where Jesus left off, elaborating further that there is more than one allowance for divorce and remarriage. So Exodus chapter 21 is the text I'd like to draw your attention to. And you've got to hang in there with me, okay? I, I think you'll find encouragement, but... I probably will never have this sermon be my candidating sermon at the next big church I'm going to go to. Um, <laughs> I'll also tell you that I woke up, I, I was up late, like Psalm 127 talks about. I was up late and I woke up at five and couldn't sleep and pulled up a different sermon, worked on a different sermon from Titus. It's open right now on my browser um, because I didn't want to preach this sermon. Because who wants to talk about controversial matters? Um, but here's what I, my ultimate conclusion at the end was. If there's biblical allowance, so someone is no longer enslaved, but free, I want to be here to tell them about it. Because it's good to be free. Evangelicalism may have been telling you your whole life it's bad to be free because you've experienced a divorce. I would like to apologize to you on behalf of evangelicalism. Last time I checked, it's good to no longer be enslaved. It is good to be free. What pushed me over the edge to not preach Titus but to preach this text would be because it was on the schedule, but also let, let, let's see this for what it can be and what it should be 
and find encouragement in it. Okay, here's what we're going to do in Exodus chapter. Well, let's go ahead and look at Exodus 21, verse 10. It says, well-known Old, Old Testament text. It's just not well-known to us unless we know our Old Testament well. Exodus 21, 10. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Think intimacy, think affection. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. First glance, you might think, what in the world does that have to do with anything we're talking about? And on first glance, it doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. It's a well-known text, but here's the thing. This is commonly referred to by the Jews and Jews, when it comes to Jewish court, trying to figure out who should be able to get a divorce and who shouldn't be able to get a divorce. In its original context, it's an apple. Later, the Jews, even faithful Jewish rabbis, not like the Pharisees, but the ones who are really trying to do it right, were trying to figure out what principles can we take from the apple and apply it to oranges. Okay, just like we try to principalize the Bible sometimes and say we're not in exactly the same situation as these people, but surely we can learn principles from this so we can guide our life. Common text from Jewish rabbis, again, not the Pharisee types, saying this was talking about polygamy, this was talking about a slave wife, but she is free to go if her needs aren't met as a wife. Surely we can learn from the apple some principles to apply to oranges, the normal Jewish people. Do you see what I'm saying? Knowing that that was commonly done by the Jews, some, I don't know if it's true or not, believe Paul would have been thinking in these same terms. Again, not sure if it was true or not, but may very well be the case. So in this particular case, you have a man who takes another wife. Newsflash, not advisable. Okay? It's what they did. It wasn't what's commanded. Okay? But it, but it did happen. Takes another wife to himself. He shall not diminish her, her, his first wife, food, clothing, marital rights. So you see how this could go. Right? You, you get a new wife and, and now you're going to neglect the other wife because you found one that you like better or, or for whatever reason. I'm not going to speculate. But you're morally obligated to keep upholding your marriage vows, if you will, to the first wife. And if you don't, she's what? She's free to go. And there's no payback of dowry or whatever was exchanged when the wedding actually happened in, in the culture. She is free. And so what the Jews did commonly as they tried to help couples figure out if there's a basis for divorce or if there isn't a basis for divorce is they would consult this text. How can we help people? How can we decide if there's a violation of the marriage covenant or not? Are basic marriage things being done or basic marriage things not being done? Well, the Apostle Paul, if he has this in mind, he may or may not, is seeing, well, if there is a man married to a woman, one's a believer, one's not a believer, and they leave... Well, obviously, they're not doing basic marriage things if they've left. And so they're not upholding the vows. You're free. I'm more and more convinced that that, that might be something we're onto, And that might make a lot of sense. I do want to quote uh, a couple of quotations from a book recommended from Pastor Chris Peterson. So if you like the quotes, thank him. Um, if you don't like the quotes, blame me. 
but um, I, I am thankful, and I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Chris recommended this book to me as at least gaining some insight into the ancient world. It's a book called Divorce and Remarriage in the Church by David Instone Brewer. He makes these observations that you may find helpful. Exodus 21, 10 to 11 is case law. So we can look for the principles that apply to all marriages that involve neglect. Fascinating. The rabbis found the following principles in this text. They reasoned that if a slave wife had the right to divorce a husband who neglected to supply food, clothing, and conjugal love, then a free wife would certainly also have this right. See what I meant by apples to oranges? Principles. Case law. And... They argued that if one or one of two wives had this right, so did an only wife. Furthermore, if a wife had these rights, then a husband also entitled, uh, was also entitled to divorce a wife who neglected him. The biblical principle that is established, therefore, is the right of someone to divorce their partner if they neglect their vow to provide food, clothing, or conjugal love, affectionate love, intimate love. Fascinating, I think. Another quotation, and then I'll stop. He goes on to say, Thus the Old Testament provided very sensible laws about divorce. Each partner had to keep his or her four marriage vows, to feed, clothe, share conjugal love, and be faithful. The principles behind these vows were that they had to supply material support, food and clothing, and physical affection, conjugal love. He goes on to say, Abusive situations were covered by these laws. Again, ancient Judaism. Abusive situations were covered by these laws because physical abuse and emotional abuse are extreme forms of neglecting material support and physical affection. End of quotation. Again, not gospel truth, not in the Bible, but Jewish history, how they sought to help couples think through the issue, principalizing case law, I think it's fascinating at a minimum. So here's the takeaway from my perspective. So I'm just going to quote myself here. One wonderful, amazing, famous Bible teacher said, <laughs> if, here's my takeaway. If basic marital duties are not maintained, then it may constitute a breaking of the vows and therefore a breaking of the marriage covenant in such cases, divorce is allowed. That's my take away from looking at that text and those observations. Think about our wedding vows for a moment. I asked you to do this last week too. I'm thankful that our wedding ceremonies, uh, while they look different in certain ways, in a lot of ways, they look very much like wedding ceremonies have looked for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Before God and these witnesses, super formal, right? We say things like, I promise, I oath, I vow, we call them vows, to love, honor, and cherish, or love, honor, and respect. That sounds a lot like the positive side of Exodus. I promise to, to, to do the basic thing, things in a marriage. To you I pledge my faithfulness. That's huge to say that. 
in sickness and in health, good times and in bad times, for richer or for poorer, to share all of life's experiences together with you. It's massive. I, I, I am under oath, the most formal thing I'll probably ever experience in my life before God and these witnesses, promising to do these basic but super important profound things. And then we exchange rings. <laughs> Which just adds to the formality of the whole thing, which again has been common. It hasn't been common to do rings, but gifts and money and things like this. And we use rings in our culture and we say things like, and as an officiating pastor, I'll say, as you place this ring on her left hand, repeat after me, I give you this ring. And they say, I give you this ring as a symbol of my, wait for it, unending love and faithfulness. I'm stressing all of this because this, this is huge, what we, what we swear to do. It's a serious matter. And sometimes those oaths are broken. We don't do the basics we swore to do. I was at a wedding not too long ago. I can't remember where it was. It was probably in a different state. I was certainly in a different state of mind, but I couldn't believe the things they were swearing. <laughs> I just thought, oh, I wouldn't say that if I were you. <laughs> I, I'm more and more inclined to have it be serious and sober, but, but maybe it needs to be more in the Exodus kind of realm of doing the basics in marriage because there's no possible way I thought either one of you were going to do that for a minute. But we are called, in light of the Exodus text, to do the basics when it comes to a marriage covenant. Because it's not to be broken. Because where the marriage covenant is broken, there is freedom for the person to divorce and move on and remarry. At least in light of the Exodus text. And I would say complementing that would be Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. No small thing. I want to end with four questions. And I want you to know I have more. If you have more than these four questions you need to have answered, it's okay. So do I. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I even have five on my list, but we, we, we would be here all day. So, but there are more questions. But for now, four questions I think might help us to kind of... Uh, to, to wrap this up, number one, it's a little bit tricky. Is divorce wrong? Is divorce wrong? Well, if it's an unbiblical divorce, we could say that that's wrong. It's wrong in the sense that someone has broken the marital covenant and that's wrong. And so that would lead to divorce. So I'm being careful how I say it. But when I read, whether it's Exodus or Deuteronomy or Matthew or 1 Corinthians, maybe especially 1 Corinthians and Exodus, for the offended party, it brings freedom. And freedom of that sort is not wrong. It brings freedom from oppression 
They're no longer in bondage, it says. That's good, actually. So we're being careful how we say this. But the offended party is free and freedom is good. And then also I want to remind you that the God who has never done wrong nor ever will do wrong. Right? The God who has never done wrong nor ever will do wrong divorces Israel for her violation of the marital covenant. It's in Jeremiah chapter 3. It's there. It's there. And I want to remember that God only does what's good. God never does what's wrong. Next question. How can God hate divorce and yet do so himself? How can God hate divorce and do so himself? Malachi chapter 2, I hate divorce. King James, New American Standard, translate it. God hates divorce. It's every fundamentalist preacher's favorite life verse, it seems, in their preaching. It's the only thing we ever know about divorce. We don't know about Jeremiah chapter 3. Strangely enough, sadly enough, let's read the Bible with the Bible and interpret the Bible with the Bible, lest we be legalists. But if you look at the Malachi text, it's true. Malachi chapter 2, I hate divorce. ESV doesn't translate, translate it that way. But if you look at verses 15 and 16, you have a man who doesn't love his wife and he divorces her. And God hates that. It's a different, different issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad acting husband and not loving his wife and divorcing his wife and God pronounces hatred upon that. But we don't often show enough care and concern to say, oh, then that wouldn't apply to everything. Then it's not an always and never. Which brings me to my next question, number three. Does forgive, how does forgiveness relate to divorce? How does forgiveness relate to divorce? This is not a trick question. Are, are Christians obligated to forgive? Absolutely. We've seen it from Jesus in our studies recently. How often do we forgive? He says 70 times 7. And he doesn't mean 490. Okay? You just keep forgiving. We've been forgiven and so we forgive. If we don't forgive, it shows we don't understand forgiveness from God and we don't understand Christianity. So we're, we forgive. We're morally obligated to forgive. But we have to remember, and we did talk about this when we were in Matthew 18, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences to our actions. Sometimes severe consequences to our actions, even when there's forgiveness. And so... I would tell a spouse who has biblical grounds for divorce, you must forgive. Absolutely. I hope you would say that. But if the marriage covenant has been broken and he or she is the offended party, I would also tell them they have biblical grounds for divorce. I absolutely would. And so some of you have been confused by this. I think you've been confused in my opinion. You think, well, if there's forgiveness, there has to be reconciliation. A lot of things we do in life lead to consequences, and this would be one of them. This would be one of them, in my opinion. 
Final question I have. What happens when there is a biblically justified divorce at our church? What happens, what happens when there's a biblically justified divorce at OBC? I want to start by saying as nicely and sweetly and clearly as I can, we don't consider it sinful. Please think about that. If there's a biblically justified divorce, we don't consider the offended party as in sin. Let's put it positively, please. They're no longer in bondage. Let's put it positively, please. They are free. They are free. And it is tragic that if the Bible says they're allowed to do something and it sets them free that we Christians who supposedly believe the Bible treat them as if they've sinned when they've been sinned against. So let's not further sin against them by treating them as if they're doing something they can't do when the Bible says they can do it. We don't want to be licentious. Do whatever you want to do. But we don't want to be legalists. The marriage covenant can be broken. In addition, we try to help and show compassion, kindness, love, and support because there's pain involved. And maybe one more thing, and that would be we don't, when it happens at OBC, make it our business to try to inform everybody in the church about all of the details. I know Inquiring minds want to know. Okay? I know. I understand. And I probably err on telling too much. If you want to know something, open book. I'll show you the basement of the church. Just ask. I got nothing to hide. (laughs) But we don't want to be gossips. Some things are said and done. And I'm going to say, well, you should go talk to the person if you care. And maybe they're going to answer your questions and maybe they're not going to answer your questions. This is hard for us, I understand, as a church. Um, But it is what it is. Next week, no controversy at all, okay? Next week, singleness. And uh, singleness is talked about in the Bible in positive ways. It's complicated, but it's not controversial, and it is positive. And I am very thankful for singles in the life of this church, whether you're temporarily single or permanently single, both play a vital role in the life of the church. Uh, And so we're going to do that next week. I'm thankful for that. Um, Let me pray for you, and I do have a final announcement to make before we're dismissed. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the men and women who are here who are married and have good marriages. Make them stronger and better even by um, revisiting the sobriety of the issue this, this day. For those who have troubled marriages, please give wisdom and insight help, grace, mercy. Um, For those who are divorced, Lord, give wisdom as well and help help those who have been divorced to think through what it means to be free, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be um, no longer in bondage. Uh, For those who are contemplating divorce, Lord, uh, extend grace and mercy and wisdom as well. Um, We long for the day when we don't live in a world with sin anymore, 
We long for the day when we are a part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where everything will, in fact, be perfect forever, and we're grateful for having that great promise. Only you can help us ultimately, but we know you work in and through the life of the church, and so please do that. And we look forward to talking about singleness next week. Please encourage those who are single. In Jesus' name, amen.